Welcome to the New Books Network. You're listening to New Books in Geography, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host for today, Stentor Danielson, from the Department of Geography, Geology, and the Environment at Slippery Rock University. Today, I'll be talking to Stephen J. Pine, author of The Pyrocene, How We Created an Age of Fire and What Happens Next, published this year by the University of California Press. Dr. Pine, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. To start off, uh, why don't you tell our listeners a bit about your background and how you came to write this book? Sure. Well, in some ways, my story is very simple. A few days after I graduated from high school, I got a job at Grand Canyon National Park as a laborer. While I was there, they had an opening on the fire crew in the North Rim, uh, offered it. I took it and did that for 15 summers. And that got me interested in fire. In the meantime, I went to school, college, graduate school, uh, never studied fire. They were two different lives. And then eventually I began writing about fire in the West, in the ways I'd been trained as a historian. And with the pyrocene, I'm actually bringing the the two sides of that that early experience together. Okay, so we should probably start out by asking what is the pyrocene and how does it relate to some of the other scenes that we sometimes hear people talk about, like the Anthropocene or the Capitalocene? Sure. Well, the pyrocene is my uh, my attempt to present a fire-centered view of the world. So I, I like the Anthropocene. I like a long Anthropocene. My sense is that we could just rename the Holocene, the Anthropocene, but then I'm inclined to rename that Anthropocene as a pyrocene because fire has been the power source behind our environmental uh, manipulation of the world. And I think now we have reached a point once, it was one thing when we were you know, burning and manip- using fire to manipulate living landscapes, but then we went to lithic landscapes a couple hundred years ago. That's my term for fossil fuels. At that point, the whole process went on afterburners. And it's accelerated in all the obvious ways we see. And my sense is that when you add up all the ways we're dealing with fire, we're creating the fire equivalent of an ice age. And that's, think of all the things that we associate, the large markers we associate with with an ice age, um, large ice sheets, changes in biogeography, changes in sea level, mass extinctions, and so on. And they all map pretty well, if you think fire. Uh, replacing ice. So this is also my answer to um, the lament by many uh, many observers that our future is so dire and so strange, we have no narrative by which to connect it to the past and no analog by which to understand it. I think we have a great narrative. It's a narrative of fire and humanity. Uh, fire is our ecological signature. We, we, we have a species monopoly over it. It's what we do. Um, and the idea of a fire age, a fire-informed equivalent of an ice age, I think gives us a pretty crisp and apt analogy for what's coming. Okay. And then you, you know, much like all the other uh, geological periods get subdivided, you kind of subdivide the pyrocene into sort of different phases or different kinds of fire or different relationships that people have had with fire uh, over that period. Could you talk a bit about that kind of periodization that sure. uh, you do? Well, I divide it into uh, really two parts. Uh, and the first part is simply humans 
in what we can call living landscapes. There's all the stuff around us that burns the trees and grasses, and, uh, all those features. And fire has been on the planet as long as plants have colonized the land. We have fossil charcoal 420 million years old. But when humans um, captured fire, uh, the hominids, uh, now there's only one left. Um, at the end of the last glaciation, we have a, a fire-wielding creature uh, meeting an increasingly fire-receptive landscape as the earth warms and begins shedding its ice, and those two begin interacting. And we've done it with, with great enthusiasm and great success. We've, we've gone all over the world uh, looking for things to burn and ways to burn it and using that to shape our world. Uh, both directly by burning and manipulating landscapes, but also indirectly by all of the other technologies that depend in one way or another on fire. Uh, it's, it's really quite remarkable. But all of this interaction came with certain ecological boundaries. There are always checks and balances. If you shorten the, the Swidden cycle, the slash and burn cycle, you expand it too much, then you get feedbacks and um, you can't continue it. Uh, you have to find a right balance, in a sense, between what you coax or coerce out of nature in terms of stuff to burn and how much burning you can do. So there were all sorts of, there's a lot of looking for new stuff and new ways to burn, expanding uh, agriculture, uh, for example, expanding pastoralism uh, by the use of fire, uh, finding new sources, say, in organics organic soils, peat, uh, for example, uh, and then pairing and burning, which became a big activity for converting new land to agriculture, which is basically slash and burn applied to organic soils. So all of this, but eventually you exhaust it. And at that point, we turn to an essentially unbounded source that is fossil fuels, beginning of course with coal, then expanding into all the other varieties we have. And not only did this increase our firepower and our ability to reshape the world, um, it also broke the old bounds because you know, in living landscapes, there are seasons for fire. There are times and places where you can burn and times and places where you can't. Uh, and nature sets that. We can start fires, but it still depends on the environment to carry those fires, to do things with it. We can shape that a bit, but not but within limits. But you know, with when you're burning fossil fuels or lithic landscapes, you can burn day and night, winter and summer, wet or dry, it doesn't matter. And in a sense, we turned combustion into a kind of factory farm where we were very successful at extracting raw power out of it, but really had no place to put all the waste products. And so in many ways, the human quest for fire has shifted from finding new things to burn to pondering what to do with all the effluent from the burning we're doing. The, the earth is, can't absorb it in the old ways. And so that has, that has really unhinged um, the biosphere, the, the atmosphere. It's affecting uh, the oceans, every aspect of, of the planet. We're really into a kind of fire age. Okay. And I think a lot of people are paying a lot of attention to fire recently because we've had these enormous sort of unprecedented 
fires in places like California or Australia. Uh, but one of the, the interesting things that you point out is that if we look globally at area burned each year, it's actually decreasing. So how do these things fit together? Yeah, it's a great question. And what happens was that uh, basically when we go to fossil fuels, we begin remaking the planet. All of the places and environments we lived in, we began trying to replace traditional burning, traditional fire with uh, industrial combustion sources or fossil fuel derived equivalents. So um, and this worked very well in cities. I mean, cities not so long ago used to be filled with, with fires uh, for heating, for lighting, uh, for cooking, um, and the area around it would be uh, burned routinely and so forth. But that's pretty much gone out of industrial uh, urban environments now. And in many ways, we, we can be thankful for that. We're not living in smoke, uh, interior smoke. Uh, we don't have cities burning routinely. Um, but when we tried to do that same project, find technological substitutes and add in the suppression of open fire in the countryside, and especially in wildlands, uh, we found all kinds of ecological pushback. And that has been a disaster. And the effort to remove fire in our environment in the same way that we would in our built landscapes uh, has basically been disastrous. It has not only upset uh, the ecological processes that had really grown up around fire and expected fire. Fire was not just something they were adapted to protect themselves against. It was something they actually required to keep, to keep the whole project running. Um, but also it built up lots of combustibles and rearrange them in ways that are much more explosive. So we're seeing now a combination of um, landscapes that have an excess of fuels relative to what kinds of fires they can experience, uh, combining with climate change, powered, underwritten by fossil fuel burning, and the two of those colluding to give us really large fires like we see in California. And so there's a, there's a lot of discussion about forest management, uh, landscape management, um, and what that means, and the removal, the attempt to remove fire, and what that has meant in terms of up, upsetting these landscapes and making them more prone to these explosive fires. But it's also, you know, it's very prominent uh, in lots of areas that are being uh, land cleared, like Amazonia or Indonesia, but also around the Mediterranean. I mean, Portugal, France. Um, Greece, Turkey have all experienced very large fires this year, and some of them for, for several decades, and that's all based on land abandonment. So stuff is growing up in a fire-prone context without anybody uh, engaged in tr the traditional ways you would have limited or prevented large bad fires from happening, which is to say close cultivation, grazing, um, and burning. So that that gives rise to a lot. Part of that is an effort, I think, to deflect from the climate change issue and say, well, we can really, it's really about bad forest management, for example, or bad land, uh, rural land management policies. And that's certainly a major factor, but it doesn't absolve uh, climate change, which is acting as a kind of performance enhancer. 
And even if it isn't all climate change, it is mostly fossil fuels. Because if you look at why these landscapes are being remade, how they're being remade, what the energy and sort of organization of these landscapes is, it is all being underwritten by fossil fuels, essentially. So even though we're living in what seem to be rural areas, they're really ex-urban sites in many cases. And we're not living on the old way in which we would have been using fire in the landscape and engaging with other things. So um, we're really, you know, there's an old concept of a second nature dating back actually to ancient times. Uh, Cicero wrote about it, others did that people by their artifice have taken the raw stuff of nature and made a second nature out of it. And I think in a way we have used this fossil fallow, these immense reserves of, of once living now fossilized biomass to make a third nature. And we're seeing the consequences of that. So part of the paradox here is that by trying to replace fire in many of these areas, some places it works, but generally um, it, it, it causes some severe uh, blowback eventually. Um, we're seeing that the amount of burning in the, in the world is actually shrinking because we're substituting for it and using the firepower of fossil fuels to suppress fires where we don't, where we don't want them. I mean, think about what's going on in California. Now, if you took away all the airplanes and helicopters, the bulldozers and engines, chainsaws and pumps, I mean, what, what kind of, what could they pretend to do to stop fires? They couldn't. So even there, the premise that we could remove fire from these landscapes is based on this other kind of industrial firepower. So one of the paradoxes is if we succeed, I, I hope before too long, in rolling back uh, greenhouse gases and getting the climate into a more acceptable form, we're going to find that we have a huge deficit of fire in our living landscapes, especially in, in many uh, protected areas, uh, forests, public lands, reserves, and so forth, not in all, but in most. Uh, and we're going to, we're actually going to see more fire by area burned in the future than now. Right now, we're going to see more, more fire in the form of wildfire, or perhaps better put, feral fire, once domesticated fire that now has gone wild. Um, and in the future, we're going to, we need to replace that with some kind of uh, controlled burning, which is how humans have always used fire on the landscape. I, I see some recent studies in Africa, I think around uh, Rwanda now date evidence of human burning to manipulate landscapes back to about 85,000 years. So well before the Holocene started. Yeah, and I think your comments in there about climate change are important too, because in the media and political discussions, this often gets like really simplified down to, is it climate change or is it not climate change? And you know, yeah, it's climate change, but it's climate change as part of this much bigger system of interacting factors. Um, That's true. And, you know, fire is so graphic and so visceral and can arouse such emotions, particularly when it's bearing down on a community like we're, we're seeing now and have seen for, for some years, uh, that you can rouse all kinds of alarms and concerns. And 
So people are always hijacking fire, that visual impact, that emotional punch it provides uh, as, as wildfire uh, to support some agenda or other. And so we see all kinds of stuff that say, well, it's really not climate change, it's, it's land management. Well, what do you mean by land management? Well, it may be, well, we wanna log it. If we logged it, we wouldn't have these problems. Well, actually logging is one of the worst things you could do because the slash left by it and the exposed environment for that is some of the worst fuel in the world. And historically, the United States, for example, had huge fires, mega fires, an order of magnitude larger and um, you know, more lethal in the 19th, even into the early 20th century. And that was all powered by land clearing and logging, not climate. So uh, that, that can happen. People want to deflect it. They want it, or they want to say, well, it's all climate change. Well, it isn't all climate change. It's interacting. What I think for me, the story is, which unifying all this, the big narrative is people and fire that ancient pact we made uh, interacting and finding new ways uh, to work itself out. And right now uh, it's out of control. Uh, what looked like a mutual assistance pact is, is looking more and more like a Faustian bargain. So we really have to find some way to get the fossil fuel combustion back under control so that we can begin reintroducing fire at a much larger scale paradoxically than what we see today uh, back into the living landscapes, although um, that will be in a different form. One, one would hope that we would not have these sort of uh, horrific um, sort of landscape scouring burns uh, that we're, we're seeing and replace it with, with more benevolent uh, good fire. Okay, so I want to circle back a little bit to something that you mentioned earlier. You talked about the parallels between the, the Pyrocene and the Ice Ages. And I thought that was a really interesting uh, parallel, and especially because you talk in the book about not just about the Ice Ages themselves, but about the kind of history of science of like, how did we figure out that there had been Ice Ages and the kind of debate that led up to our you know, current understanding of that as part of our uh, geological past. So could you say a little bit more about how thinking about the Ice Ages and about the process by which we came to understand the Ice Ages, how that can help us think about fire in the contemporary scene? Yeah, good point. And uh, the book is not really about the Ice Ages as such. I, I, as, you, as you know, I, I, I have a short chapter on it to try to delineate um, what, the, what the main oh, parameters were for it so that I can, I can develop the analogy. Uh, geology, you know, is still a, a fairly recent science. I mean, the term was only invented, I think, in the 1780s. And then around 1840, uh, Louis Agassiz began promoting an idea that these small uh, ice, residual ices in the Alps uh, and elsewhere had once been much larger. There was plenty of evidence for that in valleys and so forth, but that he, he had this sort of romantic vision of it sweeping over whole continents. And this was quite an alarming concept and rejected by most uh, thinkers, although within uh, a few decades, it was widely accepted. Um, and that became a kind of organizing principle for a lot of what we consider the quaternary, uh, certainly what became the Pleistocene, the last uh, 
two and a half million years or so, were dominated by a succession of ice ages. And the record is, some of that record is on the land, but if you have a larger ice age on top of a smaller one, then the newer one can erase a lot of the evidence from the former one. So there's, there's even a better record uh, buried in ocean sediments uh, and changes in uh, oxygen isotopes and so forth, different ways uh, that this could be recorded. And we, we may have as much as, you know, probably 35, 40, 40 different episodes over that period of time. About 80% of the Pleistocene, that is the last 2.6 million years, was glacial, and about 90% of the last million. And these longer waves of ice were broken by short uh, interglacial periods, maybe 10,000 years or so uh, of rapid warming, and then the process would, would begin again and the ice would return. And we've been in uh, an interglacial now for 10,000 years. Uh, I remember even when I was uh, still in school, uh, most of the climatologists of the period were concerned about the next ice age, that you know, all the cycles that had underwritten uh, these, these, this returning ice uh, were still in, still in place and the ice would come back. And we were probably towards the end of the interglacial and uh, before too long, whatever too long means, uh, the ice would return. Uh, so it didn't, um, and it may not, because right now we have replaced, uh, we have interrupted that cycle with our combustion practices. And inadvertently, we may be sparing ourselves an ice age, uh, which would be a lot harder to deal with than a fire age. But if we continue, as we are, we will have a runaway fire age. And that will be uh, the, the, the choice in that case between a fire age and an ice age is not one we want to make. Mm. So uh, that's, that's, uh, that was behind my thinking when I started adding things up, the changes in climate, large shifts in biogeography. Um, in the, during the classic ice ages, there, there were immense ice sheets, not only in, in mountain areas, but over uh, much of Eurasia uh, and North America. And these um, ice sheets, of course, drove off and forced, uh, forced uh, biota to, to relocate. We're now seeing something like that uh, at a slower scale uh, as, as um, these communities begin adapting to the changes in climate. We have a change in sea level, the ice age, it was dropping, now it's rising. Um, mass extinctions, mass extinctions are underway. Um, one of the differences, oh, and there were lots of sort of uh, paraglacial effects, uh, secondary effects, I think of uh, most famous being sort of outwash plains, list plains and so forth, uh, downstream, downwind from uh, the glacial front. Um, and I would wonder if these large smoke poles that we're seeing would be the equivalent now. Uh, the ice is a material. It just sits there. It's a, it's a hard substance. Fire is a reaction, so it doesn't stay. You're not going to have fire sitting in a place burning continually the way an ice sheet can sit and move very slowly. But we're seeing the landscape branded by fire, shaped by fire in, in an equivalent way. And we can see all these sort of other knock-on effects. Okay, so that kind of leads into the next question I have. 
which is that um, you say in the book, quote, we don't need new science or more science. We already know what needs to happen. And so then my question is, if, if that's the case and you've touched on uh, as we've gone, some of the things that need to happen, you know, if, if we know what needs to happen, why haven't we done it yet? Well, that's a great question. Uh, it's a question, of course, all, all reformers or activists face. Uh, it seems obvious that we need to do something, um, but we are unable to move it. And that becomes a social and, and political issue. Um, if I could take the current situation, say in California, which is still in the news, what you know, what what do we need to do? Well, we need to do a bunch of things, and we need to do them simultaneously. Um, we can certainly protect communities from burning. We learned how a long time ago to prevent cities from burning, um, but as we began sort of recolonizing what had been a rural landscape with this sort of industrial uh, migration. We cease thinking about these places as cities. And so we quit all of these sort of pyrrhic hygiene that cities put in place to keep themselves from burning. So we, we need to harden these places against uh, the fires that are coming around them. And the biggest threat is uh, embers. Embers come in like a, you can think like a swarm of uh, fiery locusts. And uh, if there's a point of vulnerability, they'll find it. And we know where these points are. And without having to level and rebuild entire towns, we can begin uh, in relatively shorter hardening against these kinds of uh, ember storms. Um, and in some ways, it, it's not unlike, you know, it's a contagion of combustion. So, you know, hardening against embers is a lot like wearing masks, um, clearing out around structures. Uh, creating a defensible space is a lot like social distancing and then getting enough of the community to buy in and do it so that you protect yourself from uh, neighbors is, looks a lot like herd immunity. So the, the, there are analogies here that can be, that can be brought to bear, but again, uh, you have to have social agreement. And uh, we could also prevent a lot of the fires from starting. Uh, an absurd number of fires are started by power lines. I mean, this is absurd. Uh, we've had a creaky grid. We know we've need, needed to fix it for decades. We just need to get, uh, get to work on it. And this time build in with fire as part of, the, part of what needs to be accommodated. Uh, almost all fires around communities that threaten are set by people directly or indirectly. Uh, this is something we, that's under our control. So that's how we can protect structures uh, and maybe municipal watersheds, really high value places. Uh, the larger landscape around is a, a, a longer project. It could last several decades, depending how uh, aggressively we want to pursue it. Uh, we know uh, that some parts we can leave it to nature. Uh, some parts we need to change uh, the character of the vegetation, thin it out, rearrange it, do something. You don't have to clear cut it. Uh, you don't have to strip it or pave it. Uh, you can arrange it so that fire, when it comes in, does not incinerate the place or the things we value, but, but can sweep through and do, probably do some good as well. It's a fire that we can defend against and a fire that we can set without having it blow up in our faces. The other option, of course, is what again, people have always done, which is to substitute our fires for nature's. 
some kind of controlled burning. And we don't have complete control because we don't control all the factors in nature. We don't control the winds. We don't control the mountains, gorges. Uh, we don't control all of the vegetation. But we still have choices about when to set it, where to set it. We can work with those conditions. We know enough about it. And then, of course, there are places where we, we do want to keep fire out. I'm thinking about our modern cities. But that is not a model for the rest. So there are lots of things we can do on that. Uh, and we have plenty of evidence, plenty of experience to begin um, to do this. We don't need to wait for decades of, of new research. Uh, and then behind all of this, but going on at the same time, we really need to get a handle on climate change and begin. Um, we, can, we can't put the fossil fuel genie back in the bottle, but we, we might be able to keep it underground for a lot more. Um, and so uh, you know, doing one or two of those three uh, won't be enough by itself. We need to do them all. And I don't think it makes sense to try to do it sequentially because all of them are in process and we need to do them all at the same time. They will resolve themselves at different, at different timelines. Okay. So I want to now zoom out a bit and kind of look at, look at your kind of whole career here because your, your first book about fire, Fire in America, came out back in 1982. And it's a classic, you know, people should check that one out as well. Uh, but so you've been writing about this topic for quite a long time. And so I'm interested in what have been some of the biggest changes in your way of thinking about fire over the course of that career leading up to this most recent book? You know, what have been the, yeah. the biggest things that you've learned or that you've uh, you know, changed your understanding of things over that time? Well, I, a lot of my experience goes back to my, my seasons on the North Rim. Uh, and you quickly learn, if you're on a fire crew, how fire shapes a season. And if you keep coming back, how seasons can shape a life. And for me, it was the next leap, being an academic, uh, was to wonder if the same might be true for humanity. And so I had a sense that fire was more important than people gave it credit. And that fire was not just some sort of freak event out west that happened like, like a grizzly bear attack or something, that it was really fundamental uh, to humanity and to the planet. And so I've been developing those, those early intuitions steadily. I, I did a book on US, Australia, Canada, Europe, including Russia, lots of smaller studies, and then sort of some global things. And I've been continually surprised. I keep, want, I keep expecting, okay, I think fire is this big deal and keep looking for it. And I keep expecting that I'm going to, it's going to be shut down. No, it's not as big as you think. Uh, and I keep anticipating that. And I keep being frustrated because we find more and more stuff all the time. Now there's a whole... Uh, realm of research looking at smoke. Smoke is a stimulant for uh, uh, flowering and germination. Uh, smoke is a carrier of uh, microbes. Um, smoke doing all kinds of things. Nobody thought, well, it's just smoke. It was, a, it was an irritant. It was a threat. Uh, and now we find that it's, it's integrated with all kinds of other parts of the living landscape. And so I've been continually surprised by that. And uh, in a sense, the world has changed around me. Um, it just kind of fired just wildfire, uh, fire, bad fires, whether we're burning fossil fuels or 
uh, allowing uh, in one way or another experiencing these large megafires uh, that could be disastrous. Not all of them, but most of them. But watching all of that uh, come around, uh, when I published, there was almost no interest in fire. There, the only people who studied it um, were foresters. Uh, and they were expanding a little bit into fire ecology and fire economics, but basically it was a subset, something foresters did to get on with the business of, of managing forests and wildland. And now it's all over the subject. I mean, it's all over the place. Um, dozens of, of disciplines are piling in, everybody's. Well, I, I hadn't anticipated all of that. Uh, as I say, the world has sort of changed around me. And I, I wrote about fire because I thought it was interesting. I thought it was fun. Nobody was doing it uh, the way I thought it might be done at the time. And I, I just kept going and didn't really expect people to accept my view of the world. I was offering a fire-centered view of, of life on earth. And I just thought it would be an interesting contribution and I thought it was important, but I didn't really expect people uh, to agree or to pile in. And now the world has changed and suddenly it's all over the place. So that has surprised me. Okay. You know, in a mixed way, I'm pleased to have my subject suddenly, you know, crowd the headlines, but I'm sorry that it has to be in, in the form of disasters. Yeah. So then continuing your your trajectory on what is it that you're working on next now that this book is out well a short project and a big one the short project is uh, yosemite uh, national park uh, they're celebrating 50 years of reintroducing natural fire into part of their backcountry and i was invited to join them for a trek and then i want to use that to write about yosemite which i think could be a cameo of what i'm talking about going from an ice age to a fire age. I mean, Yosemite was all about ice and the great debates early were about the role of ice and shaping it. Now, increasingly, all the questions at Yosemite are about fire, either industrial combustion or fire in the landscape as fires burn around and into. So I think that could be an interesting cameo for the larger history of fire on earth. And beyond that, I have one other country uh, I hope to work on, and that's Mexico. And it's, it's going slowly, but it's, it's going along. Uh, and I'm learning a lot. All right. Well, we'll look forward to seeing the products of those projects in the coming years. So, uh, Dr. Pine, thank you so much for coming on the show. Well, thank you for the invitation. Have a good day. You just heard a conversation with Stephen J. Pine, author of The Pyrocene, How We Created an Age of Fire and What Happens Next, published this year by the University of California Press. <laughs>